Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Hope I Didn't Scare You. I'm your host, D. Michael Hope. Each week, I'm going to share with you some short horror stories by indie authors, mixed in with a few classic masters, such as Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. This week, I'm going to start with a story named Family Business. This story was published in a short story collection named Glances Through the Eyes of the Reaper by Paul S. Huggins, which is available on Amazon and Audible.com. The Family Business The package arrived at noon. Jane stubbed out her cigarette into an already overflowing ashtray in the center of her kitchen table. The delivery had been expected to arrive at some point in her life. When was always the mystery. With her forefinger, she whisked a few stray strands of her chestnut hair from her eyes and back round behind her ear. She exhaled deeply and expelled a plume of smoke. She had always known her destiny had been preordained since before her birth, before her father was born. Three sharp knocks on the door broke the peace. She paused, then looked sternly into her palms before pushing the chair away and standing. Jane looked at the cigarette packet. She took one lit it, and then took a deep drag as if it was the first cigarette of the day. In reality, it was her second pack of the day. Cigarette in mouth, she went to the front door and opened it with a sharp crack of the handle. Nobody was present, but at her feet, the expected parcel sat. It was the size of a cereal box and lay perpendicular with the edge of the step, as if placed with perfect precision and a modicum of obsessive compulsion. The wrapping crackled as she gently lifted the box the wax seal at the center glistening in the sunlight. She closed the door and returned to the kitchen. She placed it on the table with care and retook her seat. Calmly, she picked up the cool steel of a pre-placed paring knife and broke the red seal on the package. She then removed the sandy-colored waxen paper and stared at the box it had been encapsulating. Her unemotional face softened as she removed the hardwood lid. Nestled within the scarlet velvet material sat the leather-bound tome one of many billions that she knew existed. She caressed it with her fingertips, feeling every pore of the rich leather grain. It was her first. The cool gold of the immaculate locking mechanism on the edge of the cover glinted from the sunlight, which poured through the kitchen window. She removed the book from the box and discarded the packaging. She positioned the book in front of her on the table. She tilted her head forward and searched through the hair at the back of her neck. Her fingers swiftly found her quarry. She unclipped the hasp of the gold chain and removed her necklace. She held it in front of her and took a hold of the small golden key that dangled from it. Using the key, she unlocked the clasp of the book and released it silently. Jane turned the ornate cover. The title page read, The Life of Jeremy Hodson. The woman nodded in understanding, blowing smoke to the right. She turned the thick vellum sheet and contents appeared heading the next page. One line of text was displayed, the only line required. It read, page 358, chapter 144, the end. She flicked through the book. The pages would have been blank but for the numbering, until she reached her goal, page 358. Jane began to read the couple of paragraphs displayed. 1.18 p.m., Jeremy left the house. His car had seen better days, but he desperately needed to travel. As he negotiated a set of traffic lights, another car came from nowhere and broadsided his own. Jeremy suffered, but not for long, as both vehicles erupted into a ball of flame caused by Jeremy's leaking fuel system. 
The occupants of both vehicles were incinerated beyond recognition. Her destiny was written. She looked up at the clock to see that it was 12.15. She had just over an hour. She locked and repackaged the book. After placing her necklace with it, she attached a fresh address label. She rose from her chair and grabbed her car keys as she left the house with the package under her arm. Jane Reaper had waited her entire life to have a hand in the family business. Time was nigh for her to work with the rest of her relatives. For Grim Reaper Incorporated, business was booming. Paul S. Huggins lives in the United Kingdom on the history and witchcraft-rich Essex coast. His introduction to the horror genre was being scared to death at an early age by a movie called Dawn of the Dead. It started his love of 80s video nasties and horror in general. Inspiration comes from many areas, including growing up with the real threat of nuclear holocaust brought on by the Cold War and the many, many demons of his own past. To date, he has had 16 short stories published in various anthologies, five self-published short story collections, and two novels. You can find more about Paul at his website, paulshuggins.com, or on Twitter, at Paul S. Huggins. Our second and last story for this week is Widow's Wake. This story was published in a short story collection named Pray Lied Eve 2 by Lydia Peaver. This book, as well as its namesake Pray Lied Eve, are available on Amazon and Audible.com. Widow's Wake We agreed this wasn't love, she and I sitting there on the floor of the sunroom at night together. We were basically waiting for him to stop breathing. He was my best friend, so I knew those veins on the back of his fluttering eyelids very well. Those lashes dusting the dark hollows under his eyes that used to be dotted with tiny freckles. I remembered when smiles were all that would crack those lips. And the crook of his nose, which used to look elven and twee, but now each nostril came ringed with chalky goo, snot, and white powder. Between checking the glistening opaque rivulets streaming toward his upper lip for nosebleed and watching the rise and fall of his chest, we had few clues he'd make it through the night. We watched largely in silence waiting for the next raspy breath, if only to make sure it came, to convince us that he may not be as deep an overdose as we feared. In those hopeful moments, we talked in short cruel sentences and agreed. This wasn't love. I was in a similar position with my not very significant other, not crouched on the sunroom floor in a death watch, you mind. My widow's walk was the hall outside our bathroom. That night, for all I knew, my other, darker half was somewhere in a half coma too. Maybe he will take another breath. Maybe not. It's easier to be morbid like this when you have another person who suffers alongside. Someone who understands that when they are locked in a room and all goes still, you nearly hope they will die in there so this nightmare will be over. They pull out of the driveway, and some parts of you hope they will wrap that car around a tree. Hey, it's your car anyway, and this ain't love. After a while, wishing someone dead becomes less sick, less mean. When it passes from the occasional worry into a day-to-day -day concern, you accept it as an inevitable outcome. You stop second-guessing yourself or thinking you're a terrible person. When it hits you every day that they could be dead somewhere, their being alive holds less luster as time wears on. They could be alive or dead, and you start not to care which. 
It doesn't take long to run out of gentle questions and rose-tinted interrogations when their being passed out in the bathroom becomes a nightly occurrence. Cloistered in silence, him on one side of the door and me in the unlit hall, after a while you just query every sound with, Are you dead in there? It wears on you. It wore on her. She's leaving, hence the death watch. The pensive game where we decide when and where to call an ambulance. When and if he will breathe again. Will this get worse when she leaves? There is no if with that. She is leaving. This will get worse. And then, it may just be me on the sunroom floor like it's just me in the hall outside the bathroom. It is easier to wake up in the morning with a corpse on the couch than to engineer your own guilt. Sitting here and watching another breath catch my friend's fluid-filled lungs is a little easier than standing outside the bathroom door and not knowing. If I leave, that it will get worse is just like this. We haven't convinced ourselves he will keep breathing, so we sit. Even if it is a non-event, and he wakes up, it is no comfort for these death watch problems. Nothing undoes the knots tied by these death watch conversations. I used to have dreams of the future, real dreams of being a happy couple, having nice, neat lives, doing anything but this. Dreams that a little girl has of a future mate which are far rosier than my new basic minimum standard of doing anything but watching these slow suicides. I'd wake up miserable, crushed. It was getting worse. The reality terrified me every day. The prospect of a new dawn of death watch had me vomiting my first coffee of the day into that toilet, then shaking it off with too many cigarettes before work, where I might just puke again. Reeling with the dreamscape of what could and maybe should be, and the terror of what actually was. It took another year after she left my best friend for me to follow suit and leave my new worst enemy. A year reminding myself it didn't matter if I played nursemaid. The end game was the same. It would get worse, and I'd leave. It was just a question of where he would die on that timeline. So I answered that. I left first. His body was found with a loose tourniquet and the needle in his arm a year later. I still have dreams, you know. Instead of waking up to a crushing reality that sends me to the bathroom that I was usually locked out of to vomit, I wake up in a nice clean house and my money where I left it. Free access to the brightly lit bathroom. My morning coffee is a joy that also stays where I left it. The dreams have changed, though. You see, I'm still never sure if he is dead on the other side. In my dreams, he is both alive and dead. It could be during any dream. I'm doing anything with anyone, then there he is. Sometimes looking sorrowful, sometimes looking angry, but nothing more enchanting than that. Sometimes he is already a corpse or has needles in his arms. Sometimes he shows me it going in his vein, the pull of gray skin flagging the blood. Without a word, he comes to me, and if I struggle or not doesn't matter. Shambling steps, bones jut out impossibly under black moldering flesh. Maggots infest track marks, worming out like termite-weathered wood, their little homes ringed in dark blood and rot. Little albino pomegranate seeds roiling in his skin and breaking free to crawl down his arms, being crushed underfoot as he draws nearer. Dozens of needles bounce, stuck in too deep and full of blood, his arms a mess of filthy syringes and gaping wounds. Each rib is suffocated with corpse flesh, each ragged breath a death rattle timed to each step toward me. With arms stronger than when he was alive, he holds me down. 
sometimes crawling up my body like he did when we had anything that resembled love. His flesh begins to give, sloughing off in sagging folds, and I can see the shriveled tongue black in his mouth. I retch with the stench that is unbearable, rotting meat and worm dirt, steaming from his mouth and body. His eyes give way and fall onto my face in jelly blobs, blocking my nose or falling into my own eyes. I shake my head and push him back. I can't feel what he is doing to the rest of my body, being overtaken with the face of my former lover's skin stuck to yellow bone, gurgling non-words and desiccated lips working to meet mine. Grave dirt and bile pours out instead, vomit with worms and crawling things, in my mouth and coursing down my neck. His hands hold my face like he used to. One hand finds its way into my hair while I scream, writhe, and fight against the moving corpse as his face descends on mine to block out all else. I was never quite sure if he was dead or alive on the other side of the bathroom door. Now that he's on the other side, I'm not sure if he knows if he's dead or alive either. Lydia Peaver is a horror writer, journalism professor, and designer from Ottawa, Ontario. Originally from the wilds of northern Ontario, the desolate countryside and dark stormy nights influence her work and personality. She has one novel, Night Face, with the sequel On the Way, and has appeared in many anthologies of short horror fiction. Several of these stories have appeared on The Wicked Library, a long-running and award-winning dark fiction podcast. Her two collections, Pray Lied Eve and Pray Lied Eve 2, are available in paperback and audiobook, narrated by yours truly, D. Michael Hope. Coming soon are both Nightface, the eldest, and a new collection, Pray Lied Eve 3. You can find out more about Lydia on her website, lydiapeaver.ca, or on Twitter, at TypicalLydia. If you are interested in learning more about me, D. Michael Hope, please visit dmichaelhope.com or find me on Twitter at dmichaelhope. I hope you enjoyed our first episode, and stay tuned for episode two, which will feature a story from SM Muse. Hope I didn't scare you. This podcast is copyright 2018 by D. Michael Hope. Music by Kevin McLeod, copyright 2016. Family Business, copyright Paul S. Huggins, 2018. Widow's Wake, copyright Lydia Peaver, 2018.